Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. When you become a member, enter Suburban Folk in the podcast that you heard about them. If you need help with editing, music production, or anything else related to your podcast, reach out to me at greg at suburbanfolk.com to discuss how I can help you get your voice heard. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but at that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm your host, Greg. Today's topic is travel. We're still holding out hope that despite all of the lockdowns due to COVID-19, someday we'll get back to a sense of normalcy and be able to experience all the benefits of travel. In the meantime, in today's episode, when reminiscing about past experiences and what these benefits are, we draw an interesting parallel between seeing cultures realizing how other people live, and connecting that to the other big issue of the day, which is diversity and inclusion, in particular, the Black Lives Matter movement, there is an interesting and encouraging overlap between what you can learn while you're traveling, seeing people as individuals, as well as making sure that you have diversity and inclusion in the top of your mind during your daily life. My guest is Tanya Fitzpatrick. She's the co-founder of World Footprints, a socially conscious travel media platform that includes the award-winning World Footprints podcast. Her podcast features distinguished guests like the late Dr. Maya Angelou, and it shares stories about the transformative power of travel and our common humanity. She's a three-time TEDx and international speaker, lawyer, author, and Explorers Club member. She was appointed as a delegate to the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women and is a former White House political appointee. She graduated from the London School of Economics, Wayne State University Law School, and she attended East China University of Politics and Law. She has been featured in MSNBC, U.S. News and World Reports, Black Enterprise, and in several books. Tanya, thanks for joining the show today. Thanks so much for having me here. Can you go ahead and kick us off by telling us about your background What led you into the world of travel and founding your company, World Footprints? My background's very eclectic. I'm a lawyer. I'm a former White House appointee. I have served as a delegate for the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women. I have worked in the nonprofit arts world, which I love, and travel journalist. And as odd as it sounds, all of those things, You know, they're kind of like spokes on a wheel that have really formed the hub of what I do now with World Footprints. And golly, the genesis of World Footprints, it started when I was five years old. 
I knew at that time because I had an uncle who was living in England and he would return home uh, to my home state of Michigan where I grew up as a kid. And I was so fascinated by his life, uh, by his accent. Uh, my aunt was a Brit. And, and so I promised myself at that age, at five years old, I was going to live in London. And I was just fascinated at that time that there was a world beyond my block, you know, um, as a five-year-old kid. So uh, fast forward several years later, I ended up moving to London and I went to university there. I did uh, grad studies at the London School of Economics and I tried my darndest to stay in London. And uh, but my visa, I wore out my welcome through my visa. <laughs> and so I returned back home to Michigan and went to law school and then came to Washington, D.C. I'm just up the street from you um, with the intent on joining the Foreign Service because I really wanted to get back overseas. I ended up enjoying a really stellar legal career and Oddly enough, my husband and I were on travel, and he's also a lawyer, and he's my partner in World Footprints. We were on travel. We met a woman and her sister at a bar, and of course, you know, you talk to everybody at cocktail hours, and I was complaining about my job and just the legal profession. At that particular time, I was a senior legal advisor at Homeland Security, so again, you know, wonderful job, uh, great salary, uh, wonderful people I worked with, but I wasn't happy. And I just had this nagging feeling that there was something else I needed to do that I should be doing. And she um, talked to my husband, kind of gave him a couple of questions to prompt me with when we uh, later on that evening. And uh, he did. He prompted, asked a couple of questions. And Essentially, what it boiled down to is that travel was and has always been my passion. And so within a month, we opened a travel agency because, you know, again, I was so determined to leave the legal profession and, and, and do something that I loved. And we opened a travel agency. We started doing a lot of television in uh, Washington, D.C. on CBS and NBC. We did a couple of national cable cast, and that caught the attention of a talk radio station here in D.C. And they invited us to do a, um, a radio show, a travel show. And uh, from there, we went, you know, from terrestrial to digital way back in the day when podcasts uh, were just kind of coming out. This is, I think, 2008, 2009. And the rest, as they say, is history. We closed a travel agency and, um, and I determined that I really like the media side of travel uh, more than I like selling tickets. So we closed the agency and um, and we rebranded and uh, formed World Footprints. I have to ask you not to focus in on the lawyer profession, but I just finished Michelle Obama's book and there's a large theme in what she describes as wanting to get into things other than being a lawyer. Is that common among the industry? 
You would be surprised. There is a, I won't even say underground society of recovering attorneys. There are a number of people who leave the legal profession. And, you know, for whatever reason, we go into it, whatever motivates people. For me, it was uh, an interest and a strong belief in social justice. Other people go into it for money, the money. You know, you find them leaving. Like, there's one fellow we've met here and He used to be a lawyer, I think, with one of the government agencies, and he left his lawyering job to make cupcakes, and he formed the company uh, Cake Love, it's called. I don't know if you've heard of it, but he ended up with a show on um, the Food Network. So, yeah, I mean, you think I'm extreme. He went from lawyering to making cupcakes. And Do you subscribe to one track versus another, meaning some people will say, follow your passions and the money will follow, as opposed to, let's stick with the lawyer example, maybe doing what seems to be right at that time, whether it's chasing the dollar or just thinking you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Do you subscribe to one way or the other, sort of going through that uh, lawyer track and then really following your passion afterward? For me, I think following my passion has led to other things. It certainly hasn't um, (laughs) resulted in the money I made as a lawyer. I I don't discount that time because I think it was valuable. And I subscribe to the belief that you are where you're supposed to be at that moment. And at the moments in my life, I was supposed to be a lawyer at uh, the White House or Homeland Security, or those were the things that I was I was supposed to be doing because they they led to something else for me. And oddly enough, I still use lawyering in uh, my work as a travel journalist today. I still tap into social justice when we raise awareness about things like human trafficking. That's very important to us. And I understand why human trafficking is a very difficult crime to, to nip in the bud and why it's difficult to punish those who traffic other individuals. And, and even with reviewing contracts for world footprints, I can do that. And as my husband, who's also a lawyer, um, you know, we, we have that, that ability. And so lawyering, and I will always be a lawyer, I just don't want to practice um, the rest of my life, because I think it's more meaningful and purposeful for me to do what I'm doing through world footprints right now. And, um, you know, there's a philosophy that we operate uh, on, and it's one that World Footprints was based on. It was based on the philosophy of uh, a Zulu word called Umbutu, Umbuntu, and it basically means I am because we are, and it speaks to our common humanity. It speaks to our responsibility to be of service to others. And that's exactly what we do through uh, World Footprints. Let's continue with that theme and what travel can and should do for you. What you're saying resonates with me in that it brings people together. Hopefully, it fosters understanding as you experience other cultures and the way people do things. What do you view as the core benefits of travel? Transformation, you know, bottom line, and that's something I've spoken on uh, the TEDx stages about and other stages. uh, There is a very powerful 
uh, transformation that occurs because of uh, travel. And it's not just personal transformation, which is very strong. You learn a heck of a lot about yourself when you're traveling and, you know, faced with different circumstances and, and other challenges. Um, professional, it could lead to professional transformation. You know, some people may go to a country and find, oh, I love it here too much to leave. And, you know, and they'll, <laughs> and they'll end up working in um a different field because they've, you know, discovered a new love. Um, but I also think that travel, uh, strongly believe that travel leads to psychological transformation in, in that a lot of times when we travel, we may travel with certain preconceptions about a culture or destination. And when we go to that that place, and I, I can give you some stories, and uh, and I've spoken about these folks on the stage, but when you go to a place, it really opens your mind and in your eyes to who those people are that you had preconceptions about before. And I think that's incredibly uh, powerful. And likewise, when we travel as Americans, we're putting a different face on who we are. And I think we're allowing people to separate uh, politics from American citizens. Um, and so we get a chance to be ambassadors for our own country. And again, you know, that's equally as, as powerful. And I think it leads to connectivity. And really, I think it fosters peace in some ways, because when you're traveling someplace and maybe you're dining with uh, people that you may have met or um maybe even the people who serve you, but when you break bread with someone, you're not likely to go to war with that person. An example that I have that probably fits what you're talking about, I did a trip to Northern Ireland years ago, and it was specifically to further our understanding of the troubles and how people were living amongst their communities. Was there still Catholic versus Protestant streets? Turns out there were, and we actually got to talk to people from a couple different schools from each side to see what their perspective was and what the history was. Here's a good example. When talking about what sports do you like, we mentioned baseball. That's an American sport. And the guy kind of, you know, crinkled his face and wasn't really into it. Well, the reason is because he was um, on the Catholic side, I guess you'd say, and he relates baseball to cricket, which he thinks of as a British sport. Uh, So that is something that we learn. Well, flash forward to years and years later, a friend of mine who is from Northern Ireland was describing where he grew up and he said specifically Londonderry. And I had at least picked up enough knowledge during my trip to know that if you are on the Protestant side, you're going to say London Dairy as opposed to the Catholic side saying dairy. So dare I say, I think he was a little impressed <laughs> that I had some knowledge of that background and that history and could at least follow what he was talking about or have some kind of frame of reference, which I think is a very powerful thing. And I think, uh, again, the fact that you have that knowledge and we're sharing, you know, that knowledge um, with, with your friend. I mean, imagine what he, you know, 
thought about you afterwards, I'm sure he was uh, he was blown away because it's it's not that's something that's not commonly known. And so you put a uh, the face of a very intelligent American, <laughs> on, you know, in that on the, in that conversation. Hey, let's be honest. As Americans, we're always combating that egocentric, don't know anything except for <laughs> what we see around us day to day. So anything I can do to buck that stereotype, I'm trying to <laughs> help out with. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is, great. we're fed with, there's so much noise around us, whether it be social media or family or friends or mainstream media, there's so much noise. And that noise kind of shapes our, you know, our beliefs. And uh, you know, the one thing that I love about travel is that it can, helps you confront your own unconscious bias. And we all have them. Um, I have them. And, you know, I can happily share a story when I was confronted. But the the one story I did want to share with you, because it's so powerful, it's such a, a powerful example of what we we're just talking about, is we interviewed a, um, a, one, a woman who is from... A little bit south from you, I think she's North Carolina. She's a jazz singer, an African American woman, jazz singer, returned to music at later age. Uh, she's in her 40s or so. And this is about maybe 20 years ago. But um, she's she has made an incredible name for herself. At her um, the early start of her career, her manager booked her on a, a tour schedule in Germany. And she did not want to go to Germany and she fought her manager and she ended up, you know, relinquishing and, and, and going. And um, but she didn't want to go because she felt, first of all, all Germans were racist. They didn't like black people and they wouldn't like her music. And she thought she'd be wasting her time. But she went and she decided to really lean into her craft. And she told me in this interview, she said, Tanya, I was so ashamed of myself because not only did they embrace me and my music, they, you know, people are very gracious. And to this day, she calls Germany her second home. In fact, I believe she owns a second home in Germany. And, but she grew up at a time when what she heard about Germans came from her parents who were of the World War II era, and certainly during some of the earlier troubles, you know, race riots and what have you. And there's still issues. There are still issues in Germany as there is, you know, many other countries. But she grew up with the perception that all Germans are racist people. And she, she said she was so ashamed that as an African-American woman who had been painted with a broad stroke and ha had been subject to racism, that she was also doing the same to one culture. And, uh, but her travels to Germany changed that. That's a great example of what travel can do for anybody. And I would totally agree that I've had those kinds of experiences. Is there certain kinds of travel that you feel foster those kinds of interactions more so than others? For example, I pick on my wife all the time because it turns out she is a Disney fiend. <laughs> so I always pick on the, the prepackaged Disney vacations as, hey, this isn't really getting you out there and seeing much culture and so on. Maybe while the kids are young, it's fine. But, you know, once you get a little bit older, let's uh, really 
see some more historical things or something that's not so prepackaged, what do you recommend as ways to ensure you're getting a good taste of the area that you are traveling to? I say um, set intentions, you know, set your intentions. What do you want out of your trip? Uh, even beyond the, you know, R and R. I mean, we all want R and R, but what is it you want? And I also think it's important to be open to any changes in your plans to not set such a strict itinerary that if it changes, it'll throw you off um, because it's, you know, some of the most pleasures come in the surprises when that happens. But I think even with a Disneyland and an all-inclusive resort, I mean, look, we're travel journalists, but there are times I just, I want a day of pampering and to have, you know, drinks sent to me. But even on those days, I take a moment to get to know the people who are serving me. That's a a good way to really understand the local cultures to talk to locals. When Ian and I travel anywhere, if we're taking a car, an Uber or a taxi cab, we make a point of talking to the drivers to find out where they like to go to eat because you really can find the better food. <laughs> you know, those are little ways you can really get to know culture and and, and certainly the uh, the destination and, and appreciate them. And, and I think now, in all honesty, when we get beyond um, where we are right now with COVID-19, I think because people haven't been able to travel because, you know, that's been taken away from them. I think we'll see a a sea change in people. I think people will want to start finding a lot more meaning in their travel going forward. And so we will see people really wanting to get to know uh, locals because these are the same people who we share this common experience of COVID-19 with. And, you know, and that does something. It's like we've all gone to war together. Going state to state at this point, of course, every governor is handling the lockdowns a little bit differently. So we did a beach vacation a couple weeks ago and really were aware when we crossed over from Virginia into North Carolina what differences we were going to see, what the towns were going to look like. And yeah, then talking with the people that are from there to see what their experience has been up to that point. It almost feels like going from a country to a country more so than it ever really did before in domestic travel. Yeah, well, we were in your area, um, your state this past weekend. We did a camping trip in uh, Chincoteague because I wanted to see the wild ponies. I'm, I'm an equestrian, so I really wanted to see them. I forgot that Virginia's laws were a lot more relaxed than Maryland's were in Maryland. And so we continued to wear our mask, even at the campground, and certainly when we went to the beach. And one day we actually went to the beach mid-morning, and it was so crowded that we turned right around and left because nobody had masks on. And so the following day we went, and we went earlier, and my husband, bless him, drew a line in the sand, and he wrote six feet in front of us and on the side. So he kind of drew a barrier for us in the sand, and uh, some people applauded us and, you know, gave us thumbs up, and other, a couple of other people complained, and I think one person actually crossed our, our border. In, in our states, and particularly in Maryland, where the... 
COVID cases have been on the rise. I mean, nothing like North Carolina or Florida or whatever, but we're very, very careful. And and so I, I made no apologies. We had to wear a mask going in the stores. And so I was very pleased about that. But like you said, it was, it almost, it was almost like another world. It was very surreal where, you know, we saw all these people came from different places and uh, not wearing masks because when they thought they were okay being outside, there was no social distancing on the playground for the children. That was okay in Virginia. Yeah. And I'm sure it's going to continue to be that way for a while. I've not been on an airplane since everything has been going on. Have you happened to have any opportunity to be on an airplane? No, and I'm, I'm truly um, not interested at, at this particular point. I mean, I think, I honestly think it would be okay because there are not a lot of people flying. We actually were on a plane right as, like mid-March, right as things started shutting down here. That was very uncomfortable. We had just come off a cruise and we're not cruisers. That's just not our preferred way of traveling. But we had friends who were getting married. And so we attended their wedding. And and it was nice. The cruise was actually half capacity, which was wonderful. So there's a lot of social distancing going on there. At the time, we there weren't a lot of cases in the US. I think there were six deaths out west. And so we thought we, we were okay. And then we were gone. Whilst we were gone, all hell broke loose. And um, came, we came back to a big mess. But um, that was the last time we were on a plane. And, and I'm supposed to be moderating a panel in October in Milwaukee. And so I'm kind of waiting to see how things go. But I, I'm really not, I'm not keen on flying at this particular juncture. Similarly, we don't have really anything on the radar in the near future. I think we've got a couple things earmarked for the fall. And of course, just like how everything has gone, we will see what happens. We'll see how it goes up to that point. Uh, interestingly enough, the last time I was on a plane was the exact same reason you were. We were on a cruise at the very end of February into March. And at that time, they were doing the checks to say, have you been in China within the last three to six months? I honestly forget how far back. And they would not let you on for that. But it's so strange to even think back to that time at this point to go, oh, we thought that was it. <laughs> and nothing else was going to come of it. And then, of course, less than a month later uh, is when it really started to heat up and we find ourselves in the position that we're in now. Some people are being prohibited from traveling across state lines because we're not prohibited, but they're they're being um, required to go into two week isolation, self isolation, and uh, you know, and it's justifiable. The EU now, the European Union has is um, prohibiting U.S. travelers from crossing uh, any of their borders and. Um, and I think I think it's justifiable because, you know, if people are being so reckless here. Um, certainly, you know, they're going to be just as uh, reckless overseas. These countries, the governments want to protect their own people. And Italy's already been hit hard. France has been hit hard. I mean, England continues to be hit hard. Greece is <laughs> Greece and, uh, is the only one that's kind of skated away. But and in Australia, well, that's not Europe, but, you know, but there are other countries that have done really well with this because they set restrictions uh, and they, uh, right away and uh, were very strict. 
why invite uh, potential carriers back into you know your borders? What do you see for areas like the Caribbean that I imagine are a pretty dependent on tourism in general, and b I would also imagine the bulk of their tourists are coming from America. Do you think that they'll have a similar stance given what the global perspective on the U.S. response has been? Or do you think that they're going to have to be a little more relaxed just because of how much their economies depend on U.S. travelers? That's a great question. And we had been following press releases coming from the the Caribbean, uh, you know, from some of the uh, islands. I think they are relaxing. Uh, but but cautiously relaxing. And so uh, I think just as New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut are doing may depend on where people depart from, however they can enforce. But um, I'm not 100% sure from what I've been able to read quickly. I think, you know, they are starting to relax uh, a little bit. And some of their numbers have not been too too bad now there's some islands like the u.s virgin islands they were a little bit slow to respond uh uh, puerto rico i think same thing and the british virgin islands i think were a little bit quicker to respond um and we of course you know mexico is very slow to respond and we know what's happening there too right now by and large what fits into the theme i think of what we've talked about both in the benefits of travel and what's going on with COVID is general recommendation for people is be safe, make sure you're paying attention to the appropriate agencies and what they're recommending. And hey, even have a little bit of consideration for these places that you think you'd like to travel to. I know for myself, really loving travel and wanting to be an avid traveler, it's been a hard pill to swallow, but there are other people out there other than yourself, which is what we're saying is a benefit of travel that you can remind yourself of. So folks should definitely stay up on what the current trends are and what the current recommendations are. And so we focused on some of these near-term changes that have happened. What do you foresee long-term? Have you really started to consider what may be a new mainstay in travel precautions? I mean, I I think it's going to depend on um, when we get a vaccine, when we'll be able to freely travel again. I don't see airlines really recovering. I don't see that happening for about a year. And so I think a lot of people going forward will stick closer to home. I mean, I think people want to be a lot safer than anything. And so most people will continue trying to social distance, although I didn't really see that at the beach. Most people will will be a little bit uh, more careful. And so they'll look to things like camping because, you know, you're naturally um, physically distanced from from your your next tent over. And, you know, they'll look towards the open spaces. And and then I think um, when we can start crossing state lines freely, um, people are going to look, uh, maybe do longer road trips and go to some of the secondary and tertiary cities where there won't be a lot of tourists. You know, there'll be a lot of offerings, um, you know, wonderful gems, but not popular tourism uh, spots like Vegas or anything of that sort. Overseas travel, I, I don't think we're going to see that recover. 
for at, at least a year. Do you think the ways that people tour a certain area might change as well? So, of course, the obvious example is cruises and who knows what that's going to look like and how long it's going to take to get to a point where people view it as safe and healthy again. But I'm even thinking other things like amusement parks or traveling by tour bus uh, for those kind of packaged European tours or other areas like that. Do you think maybe those will either modify or go away because people will just want to be in smaller groups? Yeah, I mean, I think even before COVID-19, people were were trending towards smaller groups anyways, um, because those uh, types of trips offer a lot more intimacy. Uh, They generally have more access to smaller areas or, you know, smaller towns. We've done a lot of cruising on, well, not a lot. We've done some cruising on very, very small ships like large yachts. And so, you know, with a smaller bus, with a smaller um, ship, you can go into areas and easily access um, areas that the larger buses and the larger cruise ships can't. I I don't see amusement parks closing down. I mean, Disney is uh, talking about Disney earlier. Disney's trying to open right now. I think they're doing their best to implement social distancing protocols. I think we'll see everybody being um, scanned, their forehead scanned for temperatures <laughs> as we go into uh, any place. We're not going to see travel return to um, what we've been accustomed to. Um, we will find a new normal with travel. Take a, um, you know, a group, these large group tours um, and instead maybe do a bicycle tour, something a little bit uh, smaller and intimate or, you know, uh, cross country trips. We're going to see a lot of that. And you can hire RV campers now. Um, a lot of people are selling their homes and buying RV campers and really enjoying having that freedom not being stuck in one place, but having the freedom to roam. And you're already physically distanced in in those things and and really self-contained. That's what we're going to see. In many ways, I think it can be for the better. Funny you mentioned the smaller cruise ships. We were actually supposed to go to Alaska. Like you, I don't really consider myself a cruise person. I've been on my share of them, but for our kids being the AJR three and five, cruises make a whole lot of sense because I can go see something (laughs) that's not just right around my area. And of course, it's way easier to travel with kids of that age. Well, of course, that was supposed to be on one of the big ships that has all of the extra activities for kids so that they're occupied. And since then, we've done some more research on these smaller boats and to the point that you made about being able to get to areas that these large ships or larger groups can't get to. Alaska is an example of that. The large ships can't get as far in to see, I think, some of the glaciers and things like that, that the smaller ships can. So we've already sort of shifted our perspective a little bit to say, okay, postpone this maybe for a few more years once the kids are older and can appreciate it a little bit more. And we're not as worried about, is there a playground or other things like that, that could really make it a better experience. Similarly, I didn't know anything about 
river cruises within the U.S., like the Mississippi River has a number of things that would probably take you to towns that you wouldn't otherwise have even considered being able to go to. So I think there is certainly a silver lining to that. And also for the other modes that you mentioned, if you're in the smaller groups, you're probably going to have more chances to interact with people from the area. And that will also enhance your experience. Now, mind you, when we travel, most of our travels are press trips. So, you know, a lot of our itinerary, if we're going in a small group, we don't travel with a, a bunch of journalists. Um, uh, but, you know, I think the largest group we've traveled in, it was maybe nine people to Namibia. Um, and so, but even with those types of uh, trips that we've taken, we get to interact with locals and taste local local foods even even um grub which are basically they look like caterpillars to me um <laughs> but you know we we get to do that we get access to to things that may not necessarily be open to the public we have traveled uh you know press trips aside uh we did a small cruise in alaska and it was phenomenal i think there was about three people on our boat uh nobody was on top of one another you know it was large enough to have space um whales would come right up to our our boat and then we could go out into skiffs you know those little dinghies and whales would come up to us or we could go into a little inlet and see the bear population you know trying to feed and you know we met naturalists who talked about just the the local flora and fauna and the ecosystem the smaller again the smaller groups are going to be because people will be trying to find meaning and make their their holidays count more i think we'll see a lot of those smaller trips happening going with the theme of locals and you mentioned that you've been on a number of different councils and groups that speak about diversity and inclusion let's flip that a little bit what do you see in the just world of travel diversity looking like is the opportunities to be able to go out and experience the world well distributed or is there a lot of work to be done there there's a lot of work to be done you know if you're talking about the travel writing industry or travel journalism industry where my husband and i live when we're sent on press trips we don't see other people of color you know we're usually the only only two people of color we don't see a lot of people of color in leadership roles hotel chains or the cruise lines or just across the board, you know, other ethnic groups really um, having the space to tell the, tell the story, you know, to tell stories. And we've seen a couple of times, you know, uh, in the Caribbean and uh, perhaps uh, most predominantly, um, there are other writers that we know uh, that are uh, very accomplished writers and maybe of Asian descent, you know, other people of color, but they're, for whatever reason, PR firms and, and even the tourism boards do not value their voice as they would a non-black person or a non-person of color. 
um, for the, for the Caribbean. And those are, you know, the, those islands are populated with people of color. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Even the airlines, I mean, you go down the, the line. I was actually talking to an NBC uh, anchor out of New York and she's, uh, she's an African-American woman. Uh, she's an, an, interracial relationship with um, a white woman and she was saying you know even in her area when people want a soundbite particularly during pride and you know we just finished pride month when people want a soundbite they don't consider that there's a a black lesbian woman who could provide the same soundbite but most organizations news organizations will go to a white gay guy you know, and so there's there's just there's there's a lot of room for growth. I thought maybe we would be hitting, I guess, just socioeconomic means being the issue, but it doesn't sound like it. It sounds like maybe there's even some mind shifts that need to be done to make sure that people can sort of get past their preconceived notions. The sad thing is, is that particularly on these press trips um, or even these editorial boards, uh, you know, the editorial boards really need to broaden their pool of writers because what they're doing is allowing only one side of a story to be told. So I may go somewhere like, I don't know, we'll, we'll just pick, uh, we'll, we'll say Chesapeake Bay or whatever, which is an area we both know of. I may go there with somebody else who doesn't look like me and we may find different things or we will find different things to focus on. And so when when these editorials, when these publications limit the voices that tell the story, they're really limiting the story. Especially I'm still processing the story you told about like the Caribbean and, and <laughs> who would be able to represent the area to your point it would make sense like obviously i think everybody understands it would be people of color that are native to the area and continuing our theme most avid travelers want to understand the place they're traveling to from the local people so i'm still processing why that would be a hard concept i guess to embrace yeah (laughs) you're good at your your guesses as good as mine, I'm afraid. Well, from the standpoint of change starts with individuals, is there certain steps that you would advise people to take, whether they're in the industry like you are day in, day out, or even as someone like myself that just really likes to travel to help with awareness or create some kind of change? Studying, uh, learning a little bit about the the place that uh, you're traveling to is a start. And looking at the space we're in right now, you know, the Black Lives Movement, um, Black Lives Matter movement, and um, certainly, gosh, COVID-19, which continues to plague us. I think, you know, there's a lot of interest now in how can I be an ally or, you know, how can I be an anti-racist or how can I confront my own unconscious bias? Really, the the starting point is just to acknowledge that it's there. And like I said, we all have, we all have uh, unconscious bias. I mean, I, I'm just as guilty as anyone else. 
because I confronted mine and I realized, you know, just like my friend uh, who I was telling you about, the uh, jazz artist, you know, she didn't realize that she had this unconscious bias against Germans. Um, I didn't realize I had an unconscious bias towards Afrikaners until I was, conf- you know, ended up coming face to face with a few who ended up being very close friends of mine for years. Um, but, so I think just acknowledging that is, you know, is a good starting point. And golly, there's webinars, there's books, the book White Fragility, I think is quite popular right now uh, with people to just help them understand and, you know, not in a judgmental way, but I think in a, a very educational way. I, I do the same when I'm traveling to other countries. I did the same before I went to China. Uh, I spent a, an enormous amount of time in China, um, you know, whilst in law school. The same with India. I had a speaking engagement in India and I had to understand the culture a little bit better before I, I went because I had, you know, I had some preconceived notions about who Indian people were, Asian Indian people were. I didn't know how we'd be perceived in Iceland. Um, Montana, you know, I'll go more domestic. Montana, Alabama, I was nervous as all heck before we traveled to Birmingham, Alabama for a conference. And uh, we came away loving that place, even though, you know, there's gross uh, mm, issues. There's still a lot of issues going on uh, there. But I know... um, I know that people are trying, you know, they're, they're trying to repair race relations. We see what's happening now with Mississippi, you know, taking down, removing the, you know, Confederate flag from their, their state flag and taking the time to understand uh, other cultures and the places and to see what's going on, I think will help anyone before they attempt to travel. And, and I, one of the things I tell people on a couple of my talks I've done, we have so many more things in common than we have differences and the similarities should be really uh, celebrated and the dif- our differences honored because that's what makes us richer i guarantee anyone y- yourself anyone listening if they were just to go and say hello uh, start a conversation with somebody who looks very different from them they will find commonalities uh, in less than five minutes i mean it, it's that easy and i think those little things um you know will help start to shift paradigms and and belief systems absolutely true wholeheartedly agree with get to know an individual person within a culture that at best you don't know about and at worst yeah you've got preconceived notions of and you will more often than not find some commonalities and then you can start to learn more about how things really are or what their perspective happens to be i can't help myself i have to tell one lighthearted version of the same concept i went to los angeles for the first time in my life i think about 18 months ago and i am definitely the type to roll my eyes about hollywood and the whole scene (laughs) there but you know what when we went to go get food or we're going from destination to destination people were actually very friendly (laughs) more so than i thought they were gonna be and i was like wow I, i thought everybody would be really stuffy and not want to talk to you and be in crazy designer clothes <laughs> and, and all, all the things that, uh, well, were my 
assumptions before we actually went out there. So even from that standpoint, you can you can be proven wrong for sure. Yeah, well, you know, in all honesty, and I, I lived in Southern California. I'm also a Southern Cal girl. There's a lot of transplants there. So, you know, you're going to um, probably, I'd say a lot of Midwesterners, and I'm, I'm quite partial to my Midwesterners. There's a history. Um, there's some beautiful history in, in LA and some historical eateries. There's so much more than that bloody Hollywood sign. I hate the traffic. I absolutely hate the traffic. Uh, but um, yeah, there's there's just so much more to these, uh, you know, these destinations. And I think if you, again, go with an open mind, don't uh, set expectations, but set intentions. You know, what do you want to get out of your trip? What do you want to experience? Anything you want to see? Any f- new food you want to try? Uh, the, you know, doing those things, I think, will just really enrich your holiday travel. And pe- people should travel, Greg, and that's that's the thing. And so, can I just say one quick thing to your to our audience? Absolutely. I hope Americans, particularly because we've been in lockdown for so long and will not be able to travel again uh, far anytime soon, um, I hope at least people will take their two weeks holiday that they have a year. Uh, I cannot believe how much holiday, you know, vacation days and dollars are leaving on the table. And I uh, saw a research study done by the U.S. Travel Association, Oxford Economics and uh, IPSOS. And they said last year in 2019, there were 768 million days of vacation left on the table. And of those, 236 million were forfeited, which really equated to about $65.5 billion in lost benefits. And I'm here to say if anyone wants to waste their holiday days and and the money associated, I will happily accept. (laughs) I mean, that's just a lot of days and money left on the table. And I I don't understand why. It is a great point. As a matter of fact, one of the shows that we did, uh, her name is Nicole O'Sullivan. She's uh, an Australian uh, travel agent coach. And she reminded me that Australians get mandatory minimum five weeks <laughs> as compared to Americans who are lucky to get there too and actually take there too. And I was actually on a show uh, with a gentleman from the UK and it was a similar theme. We were hashing out a little bit why it is that Americans in particular have such a hard time ripping themselves away from their day-to-day work and actually enjoy their holiday, whatever that means to the person. So that is absolutely good advice. And Tanya, before I get you out of here, let's do a couple quick hits. So as you've mentioned, you've been to a lot of different places. What is your favorite place to travel to? (laughs) You're asking a travel journalist, really? (laughs) (laughs) You don't have to pick one. You can maybe give me a few. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, I I love Namibia. Um, I really enjoyed India. Uh, South Africa, I mean, uh, the Southern African uh, countries are phenomenal. Iceland, we love, love Iceland. And surprisingly, Brazil. 
I, there's just something about Brazil, the Brazilian, the Portuguese culture. We love Portugal as well. Uh, I mean, really take a dart and uh, just let me throw it on a map because you'll get an easier answer that way. <laughs> Brazil, I think, is probably a country that really spoke to, to my husband and I uh, a lot. Uh, and again, we, you know, we went there with, uh, we were concerned because we went to, we covered the Olympic Games. We have been covering the Olympic and Paralympic Games, and so we went for the games. And there was a lot of, a uh, lot in the media about crime and the Zika virus, and and we decided to go just to learn that the Zika mosquito was concentrated in another part of the country, and crime wasn't as bad as they made it out to be. So. Uh, we did uh, what I call ground truthing. So we found our own truth on the ground. And that's that's just an, a piece of advice I want to leave with your audience, too, is to not be afraid to ground truth and form their own opinion outside of media. That is advice that people can take beyond travel, even as just a daily reminder to experience things themselves, form their own opinion, as you said, and it'll probably make them all the better for it. Well, Tanya, before I let you go, do you want to go ahead and give folks your contact information for yourself or for World Footprints and let folks know if there's any events or anything else that they should be aware of for you? We have an incredible podcast coming up on World Footprints, which they'll be able to find at worldfootprints.com and footprints is plural. This is going to be a three-part series about a colleague of ours who actually got trapped in India at the height of the COVID-19 and um, narrowly escaped. I mean, I'll say it was a very harrowing and emotional exercise for her. So uh, that's coming up. Um, We certainly have a lot of great articles on our site. One article just recently published about a photographer, a humanitarian photographer, and her view of uh, a war-torn Sudan uh, refugees. Worldfootprints.com. I'm also on Facebook at Tanya Fitzpatrick and LinkedIn, but we're at World Footprints on all social media uh, platforms except TikTok. I'm not at TikTok yet. <laughs> so I have to laugh because I just went on TikTok and I put a retirement video <laughs> was the first thing I put on there, just proving I have no business on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I don't want to have to put on makeup and you know do my hair every single day. I mean, I'm enjoying working from home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody sees me. <laughs> well, and of course, uh, we'll put all of your contact information into the show notes. Again, I really appreciate you joining the show. Had a great time, great conversation, and we'll be in touch. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit SuburbanFolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening. Suburban Folk is part of the Pod All the Time podcasting network with 12 other great podcasts. Head over to SuburbanFolk.com for links to their shows. We're also part of the Ring Media Network. Go to RingMedia.com to learn more. That's R-R-I-N-G Media.com.